Hello and welcome to Equipping the Saints. I'm Ryan, and thank you for joining us today. This is week two of our study of the book of James. And what I'm planning to do today is to go through the same scripture again a second time. Now, at first you may think, well, why? Why would you want to do that? But we have to understand something about scripture. Scripture is so deep. There is so much in here. There are whole sermons, there are whole books written on just a couple of verses in Scripture. And so there is so much that we can glean from the Scripture. And quite frankly, what we covered last time was very superficial, very scratching the surface. So what I'm attempting to do this time is to go a little bit deeper and to see if we discover anything else as we examine Scripture a little bit more carefully. So the process that I use is what is typically used in seminary for Bible study, which is the three steps of studying the Bible, known as observation, interpretation, and application. So what we're going to do is we're going to read the scripture again, which is James chapter 1, beginning in verse 1 through verse 12, and then we will ask questions of the text. And we'll look at specific wording, specific grammatical structure, and all of the minor details that are hidden within here. And maybe with that, we will find something else. So let's get started. James chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position, and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind, and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. I hope you feel the same as I did, that many new things jumped out at me as I read the text. Now granted, I had studied this before I recorded this, so I have a little bit more to talk about because I've already investigated the scripture a little bit more deeply, but at any time, of course, you can pause this or slow it down to your liking in order to cross-reference different verses throughout the Bible and see if these things are indeed true to what I'm saying. Again, this is my interpretation, which I think is pretty theologically solid, but I suppose none of this is beyond debate. 
I'm sure much of what I'm saying could be debatable. So if you have a question or a comment, please send me an email. I'd be happy to respond to you, and we can talk about it some more. But really, the whole point of this whole thing is to understand God better. Not to understand me, not to understand my interpretation of things, but through this experience, we will interact and have an encounter with the holy God who wrote this. And my sincere hope is that through this as well, we will grow spiritually so that we will have a more mature approach to Scripture, as well as we will walk away from here better than we were before, so that we can show the world what it means to truly be salt and light, to more accurately show the world that we are children of light through Jesus Christ. So let's see if we see anything new here in verse 1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he is noting here, that there is a distinction between God and Jesus Christ. Some of this may be fundamental, some of it may be elementary to you, but this is a diverse audience that reads the Bible. So I don't know where you personally are at, so if this is something you already know, then by all means move on to the next topic. But it's always good to look at the basics as well, to be reminded of the fundamentals, because so often we come to Scripture with a set of biases, and with a set of expectations that we are pulling from different areas of Scripture, as well as from our own life experience. But yet, sometimes we need to just look at the text for what it is, rather than rush to conclusions on things. So James is noting here that he is a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, meaning that God and Jesus Christ here are not the same person. Now, of course, the Trinity is three persons but one God. So what's referring to here is God the Father and God the Son, Jesus Christ. But let's move on to the rest here. To the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad. So if we recall who his audience was, this was Jewish Christians, and they were dispersed abroad. This dispersion is what caused the mission field to begin for Christianity. It wasn't a painless experience. It wasn't a pleasant experience always, because much of the dispersion was the result of persecution and threats by the Roman government. The government was not happy with Christianity, and I hope we understand that. But why was Christianity so offensive to Rome? Well, for one very important reason, because there can only be one sovereign. And Christians would claim that the sovereign was Jesus Christ. He is the sovereign. He is the King of kings, Lord of lords, right? The problem, though, is that Rome would exalt their emperor to the level of a god, and they would worship him, and he was much bigger than life. And so for you to say that Jesus is sovereign and not Caesar, you've got a serious problem on your hands. And therefore, that's why there was such a persecution on the church in those days. And this went on for centuries until the collapse of the Roman Empire. And it still goes on today in our own governments, because the pride of men does not like to share the spotlight with Jesus, despite the fact that the absolute moral truth 
is that Jesus is sovereign over everything. That's a very uncomfortable topic, and so it is so offensive to people that they will hate you for it. And if we have spent any length of time in church, we know that this is something to be expected. So that's why verse 2 makes so much sense, right? Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. They're going through trials. It is not easy being a follower of Jesus Christ. In fact, if you're not experiencing any trials at all, that is something to be concerned about. Either you're accommodating some kind of sin in your life, or you're not a follower of Jesus Christ at all. You're not born again and regenerated by the Spirit. Either way, that is cause for concern. But those that are indeed saved, we should consider it all joy that we are encountering trials. The trials themselves are not pleasant. We know that. The trials are meant to test our faith. Our faith is a gift from God in itself, yes, but we also have to remind ourselves of the dynamic between God and his chosen people. It is much like a father-child dynamic. The father knows what the child is capable of, what talents and potential that person has, and will cultivate that in the individual as the father sees fit. God does the same thing with us. He knows your limits. He knows what your potential is. He knows what your talents are, because he created you. He made you intentionally. You were fearfully and wonderfully made by the hand of God. So there will be trials, but the trials are there to teach us something. The trials exist to show us how to grow in sanctification, how to become more and more holy, how to become more and more firm in our faith, how to grow as Christians. Those are the steps that are necessary to get, as the Bible would call, the milk of the word, the baby food of the word, if you will, and to go into the solid food and go to the deeper stuff, the more the more complex topics. There are two distinct portions of Scripture, and they are separate from each other. There's the milk, and there's the solid food. The milk is the easier stuff to understand, but the solid food is for those that are mature, because those things are spiritually appraised, much like the whole Bible is in general. But you can't get to the solid food unless you have weaned yourself off the milk. You know, but beyond knowledge, the whole purpose of trials is to show your resolve, to test your faith, see where your weaknesses are. These periods of testing require active involvement in them, not passive struggle, passive suffering, doing things begrudgedly, just feeling miserable all the time. No, those things are not supposed to be that way. While, again, they are not pleasant, we know that, God puts you in these trials to make you better. He's trying to show you where your weaknesses are, and he wants to fill in those voids in your life, those weaknesses with his strength. He wants to weave together your imperfections with his perfection. He wants you to rely and trust solely on him for your strength, for your wisdom, for everything that you are. 
instead of relying on distractions and guilty pleasures and sin to satisfy yourself. Those things are vain. Those things are pointless, and they're not going to help you along the way, much like James is going to show us about money here. So that's why in verse 3 he says that we should know, we have to understand that the testing of faith produces endurance. It will be harder and harder to discourage you. It will be harder and harder for you to lose your way. It will be harder and harder for you to regress if you have endurance. And when we move into verse 4, it says that we are to let endurance have its way. Letting something happen is an action. All of this is an action, isn't it? We are being tested, and you let endurance happen. You need to be involved. It's not just something that will click in your head out of nowhere without you actually trying to identify with God where the problem is. This should draw you to more time in Scripture and to more time in prayer, to seek God's counsel, to seek from the source, what is it that you want me to learn here, Lord? What am I supposed to gain from this experience? Please show me what it is that I need to know. Let endurance have its perfect result. What is it supposed to do in the end? Make you perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Again, this does not mean that you will be sinless. This does not mean that you will never make mistakes ever again. But what it does do is it prepares you for the next step, whatever that step may be. It's different for every person. But ultimately, God has a purpose for you. He has a plan for you. And before you can fulfill that mission, you need to be properly prepared. And so God shows you how to use all the tools in your toolkit before you go out and try to use them. I find verse 5 a little funny when we get to it after what verse 4 says. Let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But yet it suggests that you might lack wisdom at the end of it. Does that mean that we did not let endurance have its perfect result? Maybe. Maybe that's why you failed the mission. And if you're anything like me, these missions, these trials, these situations that I get put into are the same exact ones over and over and over until God shows me what I'm supposed to learn and how to conquer it. And then we go into something new. I don't know if you're anything like me on that, but that's how God has chosen to develop me. And it's in my life, it's a cycle of sin. It's a cycle of addictions and a cycle of issues that constantly try to reinsert themselves in my life. Sometimes I give in to them and I fail the mission. Sometimes I don't. And I see a breakthrough when those times happen. And it makes me stronger and stronger and stronger for the next times. But there are times where we won't know what to do, or we will fail. So we need to seek God's wisdom. 
We need to ask him for wisdom. It says, if we lack any wisdom, I don't know what to do here, Lord. I don't know what you want me to learn. I don't know if I can handle all this. Lord, I don't know if I can make it. I don't know if I can survive this trial, Lord, without offending you, without failing you. If we have that sincere desire to succeed and to endure, ask God for the wisdom. He'll show you how to do it. And it's also mentioned in Scripture that he always provides an escape plan for you. There's always a means of escape from these trials. There's always a way to beat sin, to flee from it, to resist it. God does not put us in situations where we have no choice but to sin. He would not do that. He always produces a means of escape. If we lack wisdom, let him ask God. Why? Because he gives to all generously and without reproach. He gives to all. If anybody asks him, he will give it. If they ask correctly, he will give generously. He'll give you more than you needed, in other words. And he won't hesitate to give it to you. How wonderful is that? But as we discussed last time, we can't have any doubt in our mind that God can or will do it. Otherwise, we should not expect an answer from him. And that's where I end up a lot. I end up here in this section where I get tossed around like the surf of the sea. But scripture is very clear about the cause of the tossing around by the wind, and that is being double-minded. There's your symptom right there. You're being double-minded, meaning you have not fully surrendered to God, but instead you are compromising with something in the world that you know in your heart of hearts that you're not supposed to be giving into. We all have different ones. You already know mine. I've shared mine many times. And they could they never go away. They are like addictions, like alcoholism or drugs. Those things do not go away overnight and it is a lifelong struggle. But we should not expect God to give us wisdom if we think that we can compromise with the world and try to fit him in somehow. It just doesn't work. Take it from somebody who has failed in this way many times. It simply doesn't work. If you live that way, the Bible calls that person a double-minded man or woman, unstable in all his ways. You will be unstable. And nine times out of ten, if somebody who knows you is paying attention, or somebody who is spiritually discerning at your church, they'll notice because it will seep into every portion of your life. You will be unstable where? In all your ways. The way you think about things, the way you handle situations, the way you talk to people, your demeanor, the quality of your work, the quality of your home life, the quality of your personal life, where you're choosing to spend your time, it's going to seep into every pore of your life. 
because you will be unstable in all your ways, it will affect every area of your life. There will likely be no area of your life untouched by this. So again, this is not something to take lightly, right? God doesn't want us to be in a state of confusion or in a state of doubt or separated from him, backslidden. God wants us close to him, and he's able to keep you close to him if you participate, if you have faith. It's not just something that, Lord, I'm sinning, stop me. He's not going to always override you. He can, but he doesn't usually do it. He lets you make your decisions, and he will also let you have the natural consequences of those decisions. And that is part of the learning process. But just as we saw last time, verse 9 changes gears, right? It talks about a brother of humble circumstances. This is important because note here that it's saying that this is a brother. A brother being someone who is also a Christian, okay? That person is to glory in his high position. What high position does a person of humble circumstances have? Let me read you the Beatitudes from Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 3, and see if this relates somehow. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Doesn't seem to be much of a coincidence why this is first on the list, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus thought very highly of Christians with humble circumstances, because being a believer in humble circumstances is being poor in spirit. And those are the ones that get the kingdom of heaven. Interesting. Verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. That sounds very similar to enduring the trials, right? If we are indeed hungering and thirsting for righteousness, then we will learn the lessons and we will succeed. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. That one's a very big one. We'll talk about some other time. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God, just like we are called as believers. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Here's another big one to consider. This is directly related to the trials. The trials are not just problems in your life. Again, trials are directly related to your faith and taking a stand for Jesus Christ. By living an active lifestyle of Christianity, people are going to notice and people are going to react. And it's not always going to be nice. Sometimes they are going to revile you for what you say. And that's okay. That's the kind of persecution that Jesus is talking about here. Not just, oh, they're mean to me, I'm being bullied in school, or they don't like me because of my skin color, 
or, oh, they don't like me because I'm annoying, or whatever the case may be. This is talking about a spiritual issue. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness by adhering to what the Bible says and obeying it. That will cause persecution in your life. Those people are blessed, right? That's what Jesus says here in verse 10. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's where we're going. That is our citizenship now. Verse 11, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. Why? Because of me. Not just because of any other reason, but because of Christ. Verse 12, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Very interesting. So, by us being persecuted on earth as Christians, we are being persecuted the same way that the prophets of the Old Testament were persecuted. We share that kinship with them in that way. So does that make verse 9 make a little more sense? That the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position? What high position is that? We are going to be inheritors of a heavenly kingdom. We have the King of kings and Lord of lords that owns us now, that made us become heirs to the throne. We have a wonderful inheritance waiting for us. And not only that, but we have the Holy Spirit with us now as the down payment of that, that empowers us and puts us through trials to make us better. He is actively involved in our development. We have many things to be grateful for. We should glory in our high position. God looks at us with favor That is the highest position you could possibly have on earth. Could we not agree with that? If God instills value into you, then there is no earthly or material equivalent to that. That is the richness that we have in the Spirit. But as we explore that, it contrasts this with the rich man. Now notice this. It doesn't say that he is the rich brother. This is just talking about the rich man, someone who is not a believer. The rich man is to glory in his humiliation. Why is he going to be humiliated? Well, he's either going to lose his money one day, or he's going to be brought through circumstances that help him to realize that money does little to nothing to help you. And it's at best transitory. Money's not going to accomplish much. It may be a band-aid to some things, and it may make certain pleasures in life better. But it's not going to save you through trials. It's not going to save you through spiritual issues. It's not going to save you from hell. That's why he compares the rich man to flowering grass. Flowering grass is beautiful to behold. Money and gold and jewels and all of that is beautiful to behold. There is something to admire about people that have a 
insane amount of wealth. However, it's all emptiness if God's not in it. For the sun will rise with a scorching wind and will wither the grass. The trials in life will come, time will march on, and the flower's going to fall off. The highest points of life and the most successful portions of life will instantly be gone. It is so fragile, isn't it? Life is so fragile, and including our wealth. From one minute to the next, we can lose it all, and we have no control over that. This is the rich man in the midst of his pursuits. If he is pursuing his own glory and his own wealth, he will fade fast. He may have his fun in the sun, so to speak, for a few years, but one day he is going to have to face judgment. One day that person is going to have to look at reality in the face and see what significance there was in it all. Money's not going to save you from anything. You can't take it with you once you die. So what's the point to it? Verse 12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. You will be blessed if you persevere through trials. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. This language is very similar to that that we see in the book of Revelation. Let me give you a couple of examples to illustrate what I mean. Revelation chapter 2 beginning in verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. So this is, again, going through trials, right? Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested, and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life the same crown that James is talking about here, right? These trials may just be what we call first world problems, where it's not really that bad. It's more inconvenient than anything else. But in some cases, these people were put into prison. Satan was the one that was involved in that too. And be faithful until death. Can you do that? Is that something that you could honestly say about yourself that you would be faithful to death? The beautiful thing is that while we can do things to prepare, we don't need to rehearse what we are going to say in the face of adversity, because there are scriptures that directly state that the Holy Spirit is the one that intervenes, and he gives you everything that you need to say in those moments. So he just wants you to be faithful to death. Death is just the beginning. Death is entry into eternal life with our Lord. Death should not scare us. Some of it is unknown, I understand that, and some of us who are younger may struggle with the concept of death, but the older we get, the more comfortable we will get with death. The more firm we are in our faith, the more comfortable with death we will become. Let's move to verse 25 to finish the illustration here. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. Whatever godly virtues that you hold on to, whatever you have learned through the Holy Spirit, hang on to those things. 
until I come, until the Lord returns, or until you die, whichever comes first. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end obeys his commandments, right? To him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. And I also have received authority from my father, and I will give him the morning star. Jesus will be personally involved in rewarding you the crown of life. How much more motivation does one need? Our Lord is going to put the crown on our head himself. Such a profound privilege. Just thinking about that gives me goosebumps. The Lord himself is going to give you the crown of life. He is going to be the one to come to you at the end and say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Ooh, doesn't that get you excited? So what do we need to do before that day happens? What are we doing before we meet Jesus face to face? We are obeying him. We are growing. We are asking for trials so that we can learn. We endure those trials. We recognize what we have in Christ, what the Holy Spirit has rescued us from. While the rest of the world may seem to be getting away with doing evil and having all this money, we need to recognize what we really have that is of imperishable value. Those things that you cannot buy with money, like peace and comfort and joy and loving your enemies, these godly supernatural virtues that the world just does not comprehend. We have them freely through Christ if we ask him. So why wouldn't we go to the source of all wisdom and all life for our help? He's the originator of all wisdom, as the book of Proverbs points out in several chapters. This is what James is talking about here. This is what we need to recognize, have a big reality check of who it is that we are dealing with. And is he supreme in your life? And if he's not, we need to change that immediately, or nothing's going to get better. You will remain where you are as a baby Christian, and you will not mature until you learn to submit to him fully. Such hard-hitting truths. And my prayer is, which is also a prayer for myself, because I am not beyond this either, but I pray that this penetrates your heart today. I hope this just causes you to burn with passion, burn with desire to honor your Lord properly. That is all I could ask for. And with that, I think this is a good place to stop for today. Next time, we will move forward in the scripture, and we will look at what else the Lord has for us to learn. Until then, thank you for listening. I'm Ryan, and we'll see you next time. Take care, and God bless you.